0: Well, greetings everybody, uh, my name is uh, Tofik Haddad, I'm the director of the uh, Kenyan Institute in Jerusalem. We're about to start uh, the Spectre of Annexation, a conversation with Professor Avi Schleim. We intend to explore the topic of annexation with Professor Schleim. To give people a little background about uh, our organization, Uh, The Kenyan Institute is part of a large organization called the Council for British Research in the Levant. We are an independent UK research charity and membership organization uh, that intends to support research in the humanities and social sciences across the Levant region. And the Council for British Research has headquarters in London and local bases in Amman and uh, in Jerusalem from where this broadcast is taking place right now. Uh, We have over a hundred year history in the region and in normal times have a regular program of sponsoring different forms of lectureships across all our different platforms, as well as providing different forms of research for different uh, researchers at different stages of their career. We hope that you enjoyed today's webinar and that you'll join us for future events. Please check us out on our website at cbrl.ac.uk, where you can join our mailing list. Check out some of our past events, as well as uh, some of the webinars that we've been hosting Start by introducing our, 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 our topic today. Today, we would like to discuss the topic of uh, the Israeli announced, announced plans for annexation, which were announced at the end of May, uh, when Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu declared that he intended to uh, move forward with uh, the, the practicalities of annexing up to 30% of the West Bank, including uh, the Jordan Valley and some of the major settlement blocks. He announced that this would take place by July 1st, but up until today, these plans seem to have been stalled somewhat or in uh, some form of uh, elaboration uh, as uh, both inside the Israeli political establishment, as well as inside the United States uh, governing realm, there seems to be a degree of controversy and uh, or elements of attempting to try and elaborate to what extent the annexation plans will or will not go forward. Uh, To discuss these issues, today we have a distinguished professor emeritus from Oxford University, Professor Avi Shlaim. Professor Shlaim is uh, an Emeritus Fellow of Saint Anthony's College, a former Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford, and an elected Fellow of the British Academy. Uh, Among his many books are Collusion Across the Jordan, King Abdullah, the Zionist Movement and the Partition of Palestine, that was uh, uh, one of his best-known pieces, uh, uh, in 1988, as a, uh, branding him uh, what is known as the mantle of being an, a new historian, so to speak. Other uh, well-known texts are the Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World, uh, Lion of Jordan, King Hussein's Life in War and Peace, and the 1967 Arab-Israeli War: Origins and Consequences. Professor Schleim is a frequent contributor to the newspapers and commentators on radio and television on Middle Eastern affairs. I can't think of anybody who uh, is better uh, qualified to provide us commentary on the subject of annexation today. So I'd like to thank you, Professor Schleim, for coming today. Professor Schleim is meeting
1: us, is joining us today from the UK, and we are from Jerusalem. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, It's a pleasure to be on this webinar with you. Um, I have very fond memories of a conference organized by the Kenyan Institute in East Jerusalem in 2017 to mark the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, and uh, it was a very well-attended seminar that you did in a cooperation with a bookshop in East Jerusalem, uh, and it was a very uh, successful seminar and uh, it's a pleasure for me to be the guest of the Kenyan Institute once again. Bless you. Thank you, Professor Schleg. Uh
0: So perhaps we can start with something simple. What, what is? Uh, can you please explain for our readers what uh, some of the political implications around the question of annexation and why this topic is so considered
1: so controversial? The thing about annexation is that it will formal only formalize, make official something that has been going on for the last 53 years. Uh, so there's been a creeping annexation of the um, pa- occupied Palestinian territories ever since the end of the June 1967 war. So the reality is one of Israeli domination of the entire West Bank, complete and total Israeli domination, political, economic, and uh, military. But after the end of the June 67 war, Israel put about a myth. The myth that the occupation was temporary, uh, but this was only a myth it was never their real intention to keep the, uh, the to have only a temporary uh, occupation pending a solution of the a resolution of the conflict how do we know that the israelis never intended to end the occupation we know that because they started building settlements if you build civilian settlements it's with the intention of staying there Rather than wa- withdrawing, what is the reason why annexation has aroused so much attention and so much provoked so much resistance? Is that it would re- make um, Israeli um, control of the West Bank uh, official and formal. And secondly, it would. Um, be a clear breach of international law, because Israel is on the West Bank as an occupying power. I would add in parentheses that the Israeli occupation is the most prolonged and brutal military occupation of modern times. But occupation doesn't allow the occupier the right to sovereignty. So if Israel declared its sovereignty over a third of the West Bank or any part of the West Bank, that would be a blatant violation of international law. And it would be a challenge to the international legal system because the UN has pronounced on uh, innumerable occasions that the occupation is illegal. The settlements are illegal, each and every one of them the annexation of East Jerusalem in late June 1967 is illegal. So if Israel can simply disregard international law and the UN, uh, that's a real challenge to the international legal system and not just to uh, Israel-Palestine. There's another reason why this um, plan of annexation is so controversial. And that is that it would confirm what um, Palestinians have known all along uh, and some Israelis have also realized it would confirm that Israel is an apartheid state. If you look at Israel proper within its own borders, you can say it's a democracy. Um, flawed democracy, but all democracies are flawed. But there is procedural democracy. There are elections, there are political parties. Um, uh, But if you look at uh, uh, Israel and uh, the West Bank, it most emphatically is not a democracy. It's an ethnocracy, a system in which one ethnic group dominates uh, the other. There is another word to describe this situation, and that is apartheid. And Palestinians realize that they have been living under an apartheid system all along. My uh, Israeli friends say to me, don't say that Israel is an apartheid country, because we're having this debate with our other Israelis Um, uh, and we are warning them that this is the trend. And my reply to my left-wing Israelis is, um, wake up and smell the coffee, just look around you. And if this is not apartheid, I don't know what is. So uh, the proposal for annexation of part of the West Bank is controversial and is crucial precisely because it would make apartheid an official ideology and practice of the Israeli state.
0: So I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to speak about the issue of timing uh, of the maneuver around annexation. Some could casually say it has a lot to do with uh, what's going on with Netanyahu himself as well as the U.S. administration today. But with that said, you also alluded in your previous answer to uh, the fact that uh, uh, Israel may have had longer term plans around annexation and began building settlements quite fast afterwards. And in fact, if we look back, we do see plans from Israeli Minister of Defense back in 1967, Yigal Alon, uh, raising the issue of settlements, et cetera. So can you speak about a little bit about intentionality as well as the timing of what's happening today?
1: Yes, Israel began to build settlements on the West Bank, in July 1967, that early, people don't realize that. And immediately after the war, uh, Igal Alon, who was a minister in the government, uh, proposed the Alon Plan. And the Alon Plan offered peace with Jordan by restoring not all, but part of the West Bank and Gaza as well to Hashemite rule. But under the Alon plan, Israel was going to keep the whole city, old city of Jerusalem, and the area adjacent to Israel. And King Hussein rejected this offer. He said, it's all or nothing. And he offered Israel, immediately after the war, he offered Israel total peace for total withdrawal. this was known as the Jordanian option. Israel had a Jordanian option, but it didn't pursue it. And Israel also had a Palestinian option, which is to make peace with the Palestinians on the West Bank and Gaza. And the Palestinians took the initiative. In fact, it was uh, Aziz Shehade, uh, a West Bank eminent prominent lawyer, the father of Raja Shahade, who presented Israel with a plan for peace between a mini Palestinian state on the West Bank and Gaza and the State of Israel, but Israel dismissed this plan as well. So Israel had a Jordanian plan and a Palestinian, a Jordanian option and a Palestinian option, but it didn't pursue either because there was a consensus in the government to keep the West Bank permanently, and then uh, settlements started under labor. The difference between labor and the Likud is that labor wanted to build settlements only in the strategically important areas that were intended for keeps. So under the labor government, settlements were confined to the areas of the Alon plan that were were going to remain on the Israeli side. The intention was to to maintain the possibility of territorial compromise over the West Bank. When the Likud came to power in 1977 under Menachem Begin, they had a different approach. Their approach to the West Bank was um, ideological rather than based on security. For them, the West Bank, Judea and Samaria was an integral part of the historic homeland. And therefore, they started building settlements across the breadth and the length of what they call the land of Israel in order to make territorial compromise impossible uh, in the event of a labor return to power. So the the purpose of the settlements under the Likud was to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state. And this is still the main purpose of the settlements today, to prevent the emergence of a Palestinian state. And even the state of Israel doesn't claim that the settlements are there for security reasons. It doesn't say so. It says Are there" because this is the land of Israel.
0: Where does the United States administration fit into this when it comes to the historical arc of, of these uh, plans? We know historically, in principle, the United States has backed the idea of uh, land for peace, uh, so to speak. But under the Trump administration now, we have something that's uh, a different animal that's, uh, that, that, that's operating, so to speak. Uh, Can you explain or or speak to uh, where some of these policies come from? Uh, It's quite a a, a strong paradigmatic shift for the United States to to undertake uh, and to to supposedly back such a strong maneuver, no?
1: I would divide American presidents into two schools of thought when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict. The Israel First School, and the even-handed school. The Israel First School says, Israel is the only democratic, modern, advanced, competent, rational ally we have in this turbulent region. And therefore, our policy towards the region should be based on Israel. And the even-handed school says, uh, America's vital interests lie in the oil producing ca- areas of the Gulf. Too close a relationship with Israel will alienate the Arabs. And therefore we shouldn't abandon Israel, but we should be even handed between Israelis uh, and Arabs. And there were only two um, even handed uh, uh, presidents that's Jimmy Carter and Bush Senior, all the other presidents were Israel first. Reagan was very much an Israel first kind of president. Um, Bush Junior was even more fanatically pro-Israeli because he was surrounded by a group of neocons, um, and um, uh, and but now with. Uh, Trump in power, we have a new kind of animal, someone who is completely beyond the scale of Israel first, someone who doesn't recognize the Palestinians and doesn't recognize any Palestinian rights at all. So uh, he uh, does represent a paradigm shift, although the name probably wouldn't mean anything to him, but as you said, until now it's been a consistent American policy of uh, land for peace based on UN resolution 242. and an official American policy until the present, until Trump, said that the settlements are illegal and the an obstacle to peace. Trump has completely jettisoned everything that went on before, and uh, he now um, has delivered a series of body blows to the Palestinians. So he moved the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He recognized Israel's sovereignty over the whole of Jerusalem. He withdrew American aid to UNRWA. Uh, He then withdrew American aid to the Palestinian Authority, including aid to hospitals, humanitarian aid. Uh, He closed down the PLO office in um, Washington and expelled the ambassador. Um, And he then recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights, which was a prelude to saying, if Israel recognize, uh, uh, annexes part of the West Bank, he will recognize Israeli sovereignty over that part of uh, the West Bank. So we have never encountered an American president, president who is so one sided. And when Trump announced the deal of the century at the end of January of this year, the Palestinians were not there. By his side was Benjamin Netanyahu. And um, the plan, the Trump plan, peace for prosperity, as it is called, was drawn up by American Jews and by Israeli Jews. And the the American Jews, oddly enough, are more right-wing than the Israeli Jews. And let's look at the people who advised Trump on this plan. One of them, the best known, is Jared Kushner, his Jewish son-in-law. Jared Kushner is a man in his mid-30s, without any experience of public uh, office, without any knowledge of the region. He was a property tycoon. And his family was close to the settlers and uh, raised money for the settlements on the West Bank. David Friedman is his ambassador to Israel. Israel. Friedman was Trump's, he's Jewish, and he is an ex- extreme right wing Zionist. Friedman was Trump's bankruptcy lawyer. He, all, he arranged four bankruptcies for Trump. And uh, Friedman has long advocated Israeli annexation of the settlement blocks. He was a fundraiser for Beit El, a hardline settlement block. On the, on the West Bank. So he, like um, Jared Kushner, are associated with a with settlement lobby. And uh, David Friedman is now trying to organize a bankruptcy deal for the Palestinians to put them out of business. So Trump didn't put forward this one-sided plan because he loves Jews. He did it for his own selfish electoral reasons because he has an election coming up in November and he wants to carry favor to win the support of the Christian evangelists. And they think that Israeli annexation of the West Bank of the land of Israel is the word of God. That is why, that is his motive for pushing uh, for annexation. It would win him support at home. And it's terrifying to think that American president could be so irresponsible, so reckless, that he would want to push something on Israel, annexation, which is irreversible just because it suits his um, electoral purposes. Now, Uh, there's been a storm of protest against annexation from all different quarters, including American Jewish uh, bodies who have warned against annexation. And this is why uh, Jared Kushner has advised uh, Netanyahu to hold back a bit, to wait a bit. And that's where we are today that Netanyahu is not pushing ahead with annexation right away. He is playing a longer game to wait and see. One consideration for him is that Trump may lose the election and Joe Biden might become president and he would reverse this trend uh, of the last few years and he may not recognize Israeli annexation of uh, part of, of the West Bank. So that's where where we are at the moment, in a state of a bit uh, of uncertainty. But let me add just one um, other point about the domestic Israeli background to annexation. So Netanyahu has fought three elections in the last year, and all of them ended in a draw. So he made a coalition with Benny Gantz, and his um, blue and white party, which is a centrist party. But when it comes to the West Bank, there isn't any significant difference between the two the two parties, Likud and um, uh, blue and white. The coalition agreement said that after the 1st of July, Netanyahu can propose annexation either to the government or to the Knesset. So he's allowed to, but he's not compelled to propose annexation. What we do know is that there is a majority of about 80 members of the Knesset who would support annexation. The coalition government has a majority of 70 out of 120, and there are about 10 more extreme right-wing members of the Knesset who would support uh, annexation. So Netanyahu is in a position to proceed with annexation, but tactically, for tactical reasons, he um, is holding back. (laughs) Sorry, uh, I would like to add one more point about Netanyahu specifically, and that is that Netanyahu is a status quo politician the status quo since 1967 suits him uh, to the ground because it gives Israel complete control and domination over the whole of the West Bank. And it gives him a free hand to do whatever he wants to expand settlements, to build infrastructure, to build, to comp- uh, to continue to build the security wall. Uh, that is why Netanyahu had never proposed annexation, because the status quo suits him uh, completely. The initiative came from Trump and from David Friedman, um, and it suited him for his electoral reasons, because by saying before each of these last three elections that if elected, he would annex the settlement blocks that appealed to right-wing voters and to the settlers. Uh, so there are a lot of conflicting political forces at play, which explain for the delay in annexation.
0: Thank you for that explanation. But uh, I guess, you know, uh, to play a bit of devil's advocate here, you yourself acknowledge that uh, both the old labor movement as well as the revisionist Likudniks, both had different support forms of settlement in the West Bank. Some had ideological, and the others had more supposed security strategic interests. Uh, the West has largely backed Israel, certainly on uh, the concept of a secure Israel. So uh, what Trump, as I read him, what he's saying is this is a fait accompli. Areas like the Jordan Valley are strategic for Israel uh, in the long term, and in any agreement, uh, we would basically support some form of uh, uh, security guarantees and Israeli control over these areas because uh, it would be impossible to have a Palestinian entity controlling these borders to be able to allow access to the east. So I, I just want to make sure, because a lot of this debate is basically talking about the internal debates amongst Israelis as well as between Israelis and Americans, but I just want to be clear that how much this is really actually offering the Palestinians, because there, there really does seem to be a consensus amongst all those, despite their differences, that certain areas are actually off the table
1: for the Palestinians, correct or not? Uh, uh, yes, correct, because the, the overwhelming majority of Israelis uh, would not give up on the settlements and what would not dismantle settlements, uh, and that's a substantial Israeli presence on the West Bank, but the fact that Zionism has always proceeded by creating facts on the ground rather than by having arguments or legal arguments or disputes, it's facts on the ground. And that's been the Zionist strategy all along from the beginning, and that's been the strategy of Israel under both Labour and Likud since 1967, creating facts on the ground, but that doesn't mean that the world has to accept that the settlements uh, belong to Israel and that Israel has uh, sovereign rights over the settlements. So the legal issue becomes very important here. As long as Israel Built settlements and expanded settlements, there have been no international sanctions because it was meant to be pending uh, a peace settlement between Israel and the Palestinians, which would convert the armistice lines of 1949 into peace lines. But now it's clear that Israel does not intend to. Um, Uh, have a settlement with the Palestinians, that it is acting unilaterally, and if it becomes officially an apartheid state, there would be the prospect of international sanctions. Israel, the Zionist movement from the beginning has always depended on external support. External support was always crucial. So... um, Uh, Israel, Zionism is a settler colonial movement. Noam Chomsky once observed that settler colonialism is the most extreme and vicious form of imperialism. The Palestinians have had the unique misfortune of being for the last hundred years at the receiving end, both of Zionist settler colonialism and Western imperialism. Western imperialism was represented by Britain in the first half of the 20th century and by America uh, ever, ever since. So it's a settler colonial movement which never intended to share the land with the Palestinians. The point about settler colonialism is that their aim is to displace, to eliminate the local, pop, the indigenous population, not to share. And um, it may sound a bit blunt, but I'll say it anyway. Zionism is essentially about land grabbing. It's about the aim from the beginning was to establish a Jewish state, exclusive Jewish state on as large a part of Palestine as possible, with as many Jews within its borders and as few Arabs as possible. In 1917, when Arthur Balfour made his famous declaration, the uh, Jews were 10% of the population, uh, the Arabs were 90%, and the Jews owned 2% of the land, and yet, the British imperialists uh, conceded only civil and, mili- and uh, religious rights to the Palestinian majority, but not national rights. They accorded national rights only to the Jewish minority. In other words, Palestinian rights didn't count. The Palestinians didn't exist. They had no rights. Only the Jews matter. And the cornerstone of the British mandate in Palestine was to prevent representative institutions until the Jews became uh, the majority. In 1947, the UN voted for the partition of Palestine, dividing the the Palestine Mandate into two states, one Arab, one Jewish. At the time, the Jews were less than a third of the population and they owned only 7% of the land. And then, and yet, the UN plan awarded them 55% of the population. Then there was the 1948 war. And at the end of the war, Israel signed armistice agreements with all its neighbors. Uh, By this time, the Zionist movement controlled 78% of historic Palestine. And the armistice agreements uh, confirmed these lines the armistice, the 1949 armistice agreements are the only internationally recognized agreements that Israel has ever had. In 1993, the PLO signed the Oslo Accord with Israel. By doing so, they gave up the claim to 78% of historic Palestine in the hope and expectation that they would be, get an independent Palestinian state on Gaza and the West Bank with the capital city in East Jerusalem. But this, it was not to be, this did not happen. After the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the Likud came back to power under Benjamin Netanyahu. This is in 1996. Netanyahu immediately proceeded to dismantle the Oslo Accords and to continue settlement expansion. So settlement expansion continued after Oslo under both Labour and Likud uh, governments, and today we have something like 650,000 settlers on, on the West Bank. This means that a two-state solution is no longer possible, uh, even without Israel annexing a third of the West Bank. Most people today recognize that the two-state solution is dead. I would go further and say, the two-state solution was never born because no Israeli government since 1967 has been serious about allowing an independent Palestinian state. And no American um, uh, administration since 1967 has really pushed Israel to end the occupation and to allow for a Palestinian state. With Trump in power, we've moved a a stage further where the American president says, the Israeli settlements on the West Bank are legal, they are not an obstacle to peace, and Israel is entitled, Israel has a free pass to annex any part of the West Bank that uh, it likes. Thank you for that answer.
0: I'd like to sort of take advantage of the fact that I'm talking to a well-known historian, and particularly a new historian here. Your your academic contributions, uh, Or you became known for being a new historian around your work on the 1948 war and uh, the work in in the archives, uh, particularly. But uh, I'd like to ask you if you could shed some light on uh, What uh, the new historians or what the archives have contributed to uh, our understanding of what happened in 1967 I say that say that within the framework of Within the logic of basically that uh, the annexation today derives from 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 that period of time, and Israel always claimed, and the West backed it on the claim that uh, this was a defensive war, and that uh, what Israel did there was was necessary, to, so to speak. As a historian, can you speak to uh, what we know now about the 1967 war? Uh,
1: yes, but I. Um, have to go back to the 1948 war, because that was the real root of the conflict, and the debate between the old historians and the new historians revolved around, around 1948. And in 1988, three books were published. You mentioned my own book, uh, King, King Abdallah, Collusion Across the Jordan, King Abdallah the Zionist Movement and the Partition of of Palestine, in which I argued um, that there was a tacit agreement between King Abdullah and the Zionist Movement to partition Palestine between themselves at the expense of the Palestinians. Another book was by um, Benny Morris, The Birth of the Palestinian Refugee Problem 1947-1949. And the book, proved conclusively that the Palestinians did not live of their own free will, that they were pushed out. And the third book was by Ilan Pape, um, Britain and the Arab-Israeli Conflict, 1948 to 1951, in which he argued that Britain's aim um, towards the inglorious end of the Palestine mandate was not to prevent the birth of a a Jewish state, rather it was to prevent the birth of a Palestinian state. Because in British eyes, a Palestinian state was synonymous with the Mufti state. The Mufti was a renegade and therefore Britain conspired with its client, King Abdullah, to ditch the Palestinians. Britain gave him uh, the green light to um, conquer, the West Bank, the heartland of what was going to be a Palestinian state, and then later to annexing. So the new historians, my colleagues and and I, challenge all the myths that have come to surround the birth of Israel and the first Arab-Israeli war. In my book, The Iron Wall, Israel and the Arab World, I continued my critique of Israeli foreign policy uh, for the first 50 years of statehood from 1948 to 1998. Now I'll come to your question more specifically about the June 1967 war. Israel claims that it was uh, a defensive war, a war Of self defense, and um, the force, the war was forced on Israel by Arab provocation. And in the course of the war, Israel uh, occupied the Golan Heights, the West Bank, and the Sinai Peninsula. The real question is was this a defensive war uh, or not? And my answer to that question is that it was not a defensive war, or rather, I'm sorry, I'll I'll go back a bit. Israel's wars can be divided into wars of choice and wars of no choice. 1948 was clearly a war of no choice. Israel was attacked and it defended itself and won the war. The, The Sinai War of 1956 was a war of choice. Israel conspired with the colonial powers, Britain and France, to attack Egypt. So this was a classic war of choice. In May 1967, there was a crisis and the crisis escalated. President Nasser closed the Straits of Tehran to Israeli shipping This was a challenge to uh, Israel's rights, Uh, but there was a possibility of a diplomatic solution and Nasser prepared to send his deputy president, uh, Zakaria Mohoyeddin to talks in Washington. So there was a diplomatic route out, but Israel preempted, Israel launched the war, with a surprise attack on Egypt. And Israeli propaganda gave a completely false picture of how the war broke out. It said that Egypt attacked Israel and the IDF responded to the attack and that's how the war started. That's not how the war started. Israel initiated that war. Uh, Now, some Arabs think This was a colonial uh, project that Israel was looking for an excuse to conquer the West Bank. I haven't been able to find any archival evidence for this, that this was all pre-prepared with the aim of capturing uh, the West Bank. But what I am clear about is that this was not a defensive war. It was a war that Israel initiated, Israel first Fired the first shot, and Israel won the war and trebled its territory. Then the UN moved in, and it passed Resolution 242, which is essentially a package deal: land for peace. Israel withdraws from the occupied territories in in return for peace and security with its neighbors. This is the only formula between for peace between genuine peace between Israel and its neighbors. When the formula was put into practice, it worked. In 1979, uh, Israel gave up the whole of Sinai and it got a peace treaty with Egypt, which is still standing today. In 1994, Israel gave back the disputed territories in the southern, in the Negev and Wadi Araba to Egypt and got a peace treaty with Egypt sorry, with Jordan, which is still standing today. If Israel had agreed to give back return the whole of the Golan Heights to uh, Syrian sovereignty, Israel has would have been able to have a peace treaty with Syria. But the Palestinians are different. Uh, Israel could have had peace with the Palestinians um, along the lines of the Oslo Accord, which, is, which involved withdrawing an end of occupation, uh, an end of occupation and an independent Palestinian state on Gaza in the West Bank with a capital city in East Jerusalem. But Israel clearly did not intend to end the occupation, only to repackage the occupation. <laughs> And as a result, the Oslo Accord has been such a disappointment for the Palestinians because they are in a much worse situation today than they were in 1993. And since Oslo, there's been, since 1993, there's been the so-called Oslo Peace Process. But the Oslo Peace Process was a charade. It was all about process and no peace. It was worse than a charade because the very fact that Israel was talking to the Palestinians, to the Palestinian Authority, gave Israel just the cover it needed in order to pursue the aggressive Zionist colonial project on the West Bank, a project that continues today, that continues even as we we speak. Thank you, Avi.
0: Um, We're kind of running out of time, so I'd like to get to some questions, of which there are a few right now. I'd like to welcome the audience members to uh, put your questions in the question and answers, and uh, we will go through them and try and pose them to Dr. Shlaim. We have one here that I'd like to raise to Professor Shlaim related to the question of Jordan. Uh, this is from Dr. Ahmed Abdul Hadi, who says, Good afternoon. There's now a move by His Majesty King Abdullah of Jordan and Arab leaders to condemn the Israeli plans and to show that they are against the idea. The question is, what is it, what in your view does Israel think of these moves by Jordan and the Arab leaders? And what and and that will prompt and might that prompt them to rethink the annexation, or will they still go ahead with their plans? Obviously, there's lots of talk around annexation, potentially resulting in the collapse of the peace, the wide Arab peace agreement with Jordan. And potentially also, if I might add to that, that it might be a continuation of the plan to have Jordan oversee the West Bank or it's the Jordan, the old school Jordan option. So your thoughts there, please.
1: The Arab League has um, denounced the idea of annexation. That's the collective Arab position. Uh, But Jordan is the country which would be most directly affected by annexation because Jordan's policy was always based on UN resolution 242 and land for peace. And in 1994, Jordan signed a peace treaty with Israel and that peace treaty recognizes Jordan's special status as the guardian of the Muslim holy places in the old city of Jerusalem. And Israel Trump's recognition of Israeli sovereignty over the whole of Jerusalem completely ignores uh, Jordan's legal rights in East Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem. So Jordan affected, and its position in um, uh, the old city is threatened by this move towards annexation, but it's more than that. There are very, very close links between Jordan and the Palestinians on uh, the West Bank, Uh, close family links, economic links, and so on. And if Israel, so Jordan ideally would like a two-state solution, Uh, uh, But if annexation goes ahead, that would be the end of a two-state solution. But it would be worse than that for Jordan because it would raise the threat of transfer, of mass expulsion of Palestinians from the West Bank to the East Bank. And this is not an unreasonable fear on the part of Jordan. It'd be a violation of uh, the peace treaty. Uh, But um, the real fear is that a situation could arise in which there would be uh, mass expulsion of Palestinians from the West Bank to the East Bank, which would flood the East Bank and would threaten the integrity and would would threaten the survival of the Hashemite monarchy of Jordan, which is why King Abdullah has come out so strongly and emphatically against annexation, while he is warned that it would have incalculable consequences and his personal relationship with uh, Netanyahu has broken down. For the last two years, the two leaders have not spoken. So, so Jordan is extremely worried um, and, there is, a, um, so one of the risks with annexation is that it would destabilize uh, the peace treaties that Israel has with both Egypt and Jordan.
0: How really, if I could follow up on what you just answered it, it,
1: shortly, do you, how realistic do you see that option being? I have to go back in history <laughs> to, 1987 when Benjamin Netanyahu was deputy foreign minister and he made a speech in the Knesset and in that speech he said i am for a Palestinian state and everyone was surprised and then he said but i am not in favor of two Palestinian states there is already a Palestinian state on the East Bank and there is no need and no justification for a second Palestinian state on the West Bank. So this was the traditional policy of the Israeli right, that Jordan is Palestine. And I believe that this idea is still at the back of Netanyahu's mind. That he's not interested in the good relations with Jordan. He's not interested in the survival of the Hashemite monarchy in Jordan. That it would, it would suit him quite well if the PLO transformed the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan into the Republic of Palestine, and then there would be no um, uh, then there would be no pressure on Israel to agree to an independent Palestinian state on the West Bank. And moreover, those Palestinians who are disaffected and dissatisfied with their lives on the West Bank would be encouraged to move to the East Bank. I believe that that is at the back of um, Netanyahu's mind, that Jordan is Palestine, the traditional agenda of the extreme right in Israel.
0: Uh, We have another question, this one from uh, our former director of the Kenyan Institute, uh, Dr. Mandy Turner, who's in Manchester right now. She writes, I'm interested what Professor Schleim thought of Peter Beinart's recent conversation on the one-state solution and whether this is a tipping point for Jews in America and globally regarding the future of Zionism and Israel as a Jewish state. I thought it was significant with all the provisos that it comes very late and Palestinians have been campaigning for equal rights from
1: the start with the Oslo process having created a 30 year detour. Your thoughts? Uh, Very good question indeed. And for the listeners who don't know um, what the question refers to, it's for an article, a paper by Peter Beinart, an American journalist and professor of journalism and a leading proponent of liberal Zionism and of the two-state solution. So he's written a long paper and also an op-ed in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago uh, in which he says he has given up on the two-state solution and he now supports a one-state solution in which there wouldn't be a Jewish state, but there would be a Jewish home. So one state, one democratic state with equal rights for all uh, its citizens. Uh, And this was a very radical shift for him and it generated a very intense debate in America and among in Jewish communities elsewhere. And it's good that there is this debate. What here uh, the article points to clearly is that Palestinians and Israelis now live in one political space. de facto the reality is is of one state in which Israel has complete dominion, and this is incompatible for liberal with liberal Zionism until now. The alibi of liberal Zionists was that the occupation was only temporary. There was always the hope of an end of occupation of a uh, two-state solution. Now it's clear to Bainart that um, the two-state solution is no longer a possibility, and therefore he's drawn the conclusion that. The only democratic solution that remains is a one-state solution with equal rights. I would just add that to me this has been evident at least since 2015, because in the lead-up to the 2015 election, Netanyahu declared publicly that there will be no Palestinian state on his watch. He also revealed his racism by saying that the Palestinians are going in droves to the polling stations and calling on Israelis to go uh, and vote. Uh, So since then it has been clear that Israel has no intention of agreeing to any kind of a uh, Palestinian state, however demilitarized or lacking in uh, territorial congruity. So the alibi for liberal Zionism has now disappeared. And if you want a democratic settlement, the only one that remains is one state, which means that the Palestinian struggle has to shift from struggling for an independent state to struggling for equal rights. Uh, And in this sense, uh, um, the questioner, Mandy, is quite right that Oslo was a detour because Oslo raised the hope of a two-state solution. And the Palestinian negotiators of Oslo had every reason to expect that the, it would end with a complete Israeli withdrawal and a two state solution, but Israel rejected that possibility, continued to build settlements so Oslo in this sense was a day too, and we now have to start afresh with a campaign for equal rights, and there is in fact an Israeli and Palestinian joint effort uh and it's called the the one democratic state campaign, and one of its leading members is Jeff Halper, the director of the Israeli Committee Against uh, House Demolition, and, and I support this initiative. It's the only uh, solution that is viable today, which would be democratic and liberal, because democracy, an essential element of democracy is equal rights and in an apartheid state there are no equal rights whereas in a one state solution there would be equal rights for all citizens regardless of the um, ethnicity or gender or faith. Uh, thank you for that. Perhaps
0: following up and there is another question for Sam, Sam Abdul Razak uh, about the question of the one state solution because this seems to be one of the major sort of takeaways from the whole annexation debate that it supposedly kills the two-state solution, and now it's creating a de facto, well, a recognizing a one-state reality, and therefore uh, we're in a situation where the nature of the struggle, well, perhaps the nature is not the right way, but the, the actual tactics or strategies that the actors, certainly on the Palestinian side and and, and those who, who uh, like yourself, are pushing towards one-state solution. However, I might challenge you there and perhaps ask the question of, uh, Uh, to what extent, particularly in light of the previous comment or answer that you gave regarding Netanyahu's uh, back of his mind, uh, can we find objective uh, interest, so to speak, amongst, uh, uh, you spoke about the Palestinian national movement changing its strategy to to fight for one state solution. Okay. Uh, First, I, I would argue it's probably important to acknowledge that that there already was an important shift in Palestinian strategy from their maximalist demands for liberation of Palestine to the two-state solution initially. Now there are new requests or or calls for calling for a one-state solution. So uh, this is a second tactical or perhaps strategic shift on the behalf that Palestinians are somehow being asked to consider and some Palestinians and others are, are, are calling for it. Uh, but in the context of the strong power asymmetries that we have today, do you believe we have the conditions? Uh, it, it, because it obviously requires a partner on the Israeli side as well. Uh, and everything that we've seen up to this point is that uh, from the works of new historians and what those have revealed to the policies of annexation, to the policies of what happened during Oslo, that uh, this there is less... Uh, there may be less evidence for such a constituency to be formed and to, to actually be able to generate those interests within the Israeli side is that possible where, where do, you, where, do you see, where do you see that window of opportunity if especially in a context where de facto might has made right and it has so to speak been able to create facts on the ground that have changed realities uh,
1: you 're clearly right in saying that there has been a development in the Palestinian position and the idea of a one state solution is a not entirely new idea because after nineteen sixty seven the PLO came up with a programme of one democratic one democratic secular state. So this is a variant on that. But it was mostly Palestinian intellectuals who uh, took up the idea of a one-state solution, like Edward Said, like Ali Abu Nima, like Joseph Mas'ad, Diana Butu. But in recent years, there's been a groundswell of support for the one state. Uh, And today, public opinion polls show that two thirds of Palestinians are in favor of a one state it's because of the disappointment with Oslo and the realization that they're not going to get a viable and independent Palestinian state. So there's been a real shift on the Palestinian side, but no parallel shift in Israeli public opinion. Uh, uh, Israelis uh, have voted for Netanyahu three times in the last three elections, although he is opp- opponent of a two-state solution because he, because he is an opponent of a two-state solution. So the Israelis don't favor an independent Palestinian state. Only a small minority of enlightened liberal Israelis support a one-state solution. But there, again, um, one public opinion poll in Israel showed that 37% are in favor of one state for two peoples. So I don't know how to interpret this statistic. It depends on how precisely you pose the question. But the potential is there to persuade more and more Israelis that this is the only legitimate solution. And here I think that The Palestinians themselves have to develop a vision that would appeal to Israelis, and so far they haven't done so. The Palestinian leadership um, lacks legitimacy at home because it's about a decade since the last election. And the Palestinian Authority is seen as a collaborationist regime, as a subcontractor for Israeli security on the West Bank. So support for the Palestinian Authority has been going down and down. And the Palestinians need to elaborate a vision of uh, one state with equal rights, which wouldn't pose such a stark threat to Israelis and the democracy. One positive development has been BDS, But BDS is not enough, BDS is a grassroots global movement which calls for the end of occupation and all its aims are grounded, it's non-violent and its main aims are grounded in international law and UN resolution, an end of occupation, equal rights and the right of return. But BDS is not enough because it only calls for the end of occupation, but what then? And it's up to the Palestinians to develop a vision that would be attractive to a large number of Israelis. I don't see that happening in the foreseeable future, but if Israel goes ahead with annexation, then it would be clearly be perceived as an apartheid state. And I don't think that an apartheid state will survive is sustainable in the 21st century.
0: Thank you. We're running out of time here, but I'd like to take at least one more question. Uh, And uh, this one comes from Magan Singotia, who writes, uh, 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 who asked the question around Biden and uh, 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 why has Biden stopped using the word occupation. But uh, I'd like to sort of flesh out that question perhaps and ask to what extent is are, are what's happening today, potentially reversible if Biden comes into power or if there's a major change in U.S. policy?
1: Um, the presidents, excuse me. Biden has spoken against occupation, but he has not gone as far as to say, if he's elected, he will withdraw American recognition of Israeli sovereignty over that part of the West Bank. So. Uh, Biden is not ready to um, take a position, a clear-cut position, against continuing Israeli settlement expansion. Uh, I think he wants to play for time and not commit himself to a position which is strongly critical of Israel and of the settlements because that may lose him uh, votes. So he, um, he, his position is a bit ambiguous.
0: Uh, Would you like to uh, follow up? I'd like to follow up by asking you a little bit, perhaps about, because I know we have many European listeners uh, to this uh, webinar. Uh, What about the position of Europe in the context if this annexation policy actually does move forward? Uh, What do you see that the governments will do Is what their positions are now, is it sufficient? And uh, will annexation somehow expose their position and force them to take much clearer sides or not?
1: The EU is a consistent supporter of the two-state solution. And the EU has real leverage with Israel because Israel does more than 40% of its trade with EU, much more trade than with America, And Israel gets very beneficial trading arrangements with EU. So EU uh, has real leverage with Israel, but it hasn't been able to use it because EU is internally divided. And some friends of Israel, like Holland or Germany or the uh, Czech Republic, would always veto a resolution which calls for sanctions against Israel. But the... Uh, EU foreign minister has made an important statement against annexation, pointing out that it would be illegal, a gross violation of international law, and it would entail consequences. He didn't spell what the consequences would be. Uh, but it is just possible that if Israel went a further step and actually annexed a third of the West Bank, that there would be enough support within EU for sanctions, because EU has a an trade association agreement with Israel, under which Israel has privileges access to the European market. Israel has abused it by including settlement products with Israeli products to the European market, although the settlements are illegal. And EU could say to Israel the preamble to our association agreement is that you have to respect the human rights of all the people under your rule. You are violating Palestinian human rights, and therefore we will suspend the agreement until you live up to your side, to your side of the of the agreement by respecting Palestinian human rights. This hasn't happened yet no sanctions have been applied. Israeli governments don't take any notice of mild expressions of disapproval. But if there were real economic sanctions, then they will think again.
0: Well, thank you, Professor Schleim, for uh, your insights and for your commentary of the last hour and 15 minutes and your patience. Uh, They've been very enlightening and uh, we're very grateful for all that. So thank you. And I'm sure our audience members feel the same. Uh, and uh, in this era of... Uh, so uh, join me in thanking Professor Schleim for his, uh, his uh, participation today. I'd like to welcome all uh, members uh, of the audience today to check, up our, check out our website at uh, cbrl.ac.uk to see what we do, and check out some previous uh, webinars as well. This webinar, the podcast of which will be featured on our website, uh, as well as on SoundCloud. So check us out, join, sign up to our mailing list and uh, become a member and uh, look forward to seeing you in the future. All the best, thank you for everybody for attending today.
1: Thank you and goodbye. Bless, thank you, all
0: the best.